everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it is time for us to watch E.T., the extra-terrestrial, because the film is turning 40 years old. My, my. And uh, joining me as always, we have someone who has seen the film before and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film and back for the second episode in a row, it's Dr. Sarah Curtis. You must be so sick of me by now. You were off the program for five months. You, you owe us. You've got, you've got a backdated <laughs> list of episodes, baby. It's so. just because I want everyone to come to my house. There is that, yes. We are in your lovely abode, which uh, has, has got extra pictures now. Well, you know, I knew people were coming, so mm. I had to decorate. Indeed. E.T., Mm. What do you know about it? Um, so the aliens who phone home are also in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So technically E.T. is friends with Yoda. Yes. Yeah. That's probably the most important thing for you to know. I think so. Yeah. I think, you know, this crossover event, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be the biggest crossover film I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I'm expecting to see all the Star Wars characters. Yeah. This this was <laughs> the, the first Star Wars spinoff. This was the Rogue One of the 1980s. Yeah. This is... and the Christmas holiday special. Mm. Um, I think that they just go hand in hand as just some quality cinema. Indeed. <laughs> Away from the Star Wars connections, uh, what else do you know about this film? There's a kid with a bike and it flies. Mm-hmm. Um, some puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff happens. Okay. I mean, correct on all accounts. So, yeah, um, I guess, you know, it's one of those uh, seminal sort of 80s family movies, sort of blockbuster things. Do you have any of those films from that time period that you really enjoy? Just... I usually despise films from the 80s. Okay. Which is probably why I've never seen it. Okay. It's just not my, my era of filmmaking. Mm. There's some really good stuff. Um, usually the puppetry stuff or just like the really campy stuff. Mm. Um, that's quite good. But, you know, a lot of 80s films, something about the aesthetic, the soundtrack, the, mm. the set and costume, it's just all a little bit not good and just like the editing they haven't quite figured out how to film yet mm. um which you know obviously there have been improvements since then so mm. just sort of yeah doing that retrospective oh films from the 80s you're like oh wow this is really sending me mm. okay well joining us is someone who has seen this film and is uh, well dressed and well edited it is daniel buckle hello and there's no way you can prove that i'm not well dressed indeed uh, daniel uh, welcome back to the program hi um et in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way. What's E.T. about? Well, um, it's about Drew Barrymore beginning her acting career. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Yeah, it, it, it really... I don't know when Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in relation to this. It was five years earlier. Earlier, right. Yeah. This seems like a better version of that. Okay. I really didn't like Close Encounters. Oh, really? Yeah, I just okay. think it's just boring. Oh, okay. And this one... Honestly, I'm not the biggest fan of either, but I think it's better. You think it's better. better. And and I think it was very necessary for films to be inspired by it. Mm. Um, when did you last watch E.T.? Um, probably like a lazy afternoon, maybe six, seven years ago, something like that. So okay. it's, it's certainly not been recent. I, I have no desire to watch it again other than on this podcast. It's, right. it's not my favorite film by any means, mm. but um, yeah. I understand its importance in cinema history. Okay. And did, did you watch it as a child? Yes. Okay. And were there any like little fond memories connected to it? Or was it just a film that you saw as a child? Well, I did enjoy anything with sci-fi elements as mm-hmm. a child. So it was a, it was a pretty easy sell for that. Um, and I did enjoy it more as a child than as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was pretty scared of some parts, actually. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, quite, I quite like... Coming to this where, because last time I think you and I reviewed a film, Sarah, it was uh, The Muppets and... Good times. You're not a fan. Look, Muppets are horrifying. Yeah. They're, they're, they're terrifying creatures that should not exist. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, this one, this one did scare me as a child. Mm. Yes, there are puppets in this film. So you... why, why is it that we always end up on puppet films together? Because uh, I think it's hilarious. That's <laughs> ultimately, what it comes down to. Um, so, with all that being said, shall we watch ET? Mm-hmm. Phone home. Indeed. Okay, for those of you who are uh, listening at home, pop on those DVDs, load up those streaming services, and leave out a trail of Reese's pieces all the way to your TV as we watch 
ET, the extraterrestrial. Welcome back, everybody. We've just finished watching E.T., the extraterrestrial, and I'm joined once again by Daniel Buckle. Hello. And Dr. Sarah Curtis. E.T., phone home. There's the proof she watched it, gang. Uh, so, Sarah, what did you think of E.T.? This was your first time watching it. How, how, how is it? Where, where's it sitting in your brain at the moment? Well, he certainly phoned home. Yep. Yep. Correct. There, there were no lies told. No. In this film, in fact, the amount of times they said that line, I I feel like it's going to be bouncing around my head for the next week. Mm. In fact, every line of this film, I'll just be like repeating it, like I'm in some sort of Aaron Sorkin, you know, walk and talk. Yeah, walk and talk and Aaron Sorkin film. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you enjoy it though? It was good fun. Yeah. I don't think I'd have enjoyed it as much if I watched it alone. Mm -hmm. I think it was good fun to just like watch with friends and mm. just have a, a rollicking good time. And. Mm. It's interesting, Dan, revisiting this film, um, how much of this film is an action. Because we got probably more than halfway through and Sarah made a, a, a comment along the lines of, oh, is this when the action's going to start? Because <laughs> uh, the, the first half of that film is is just a lot of E.T. kind of in cupboards, not really doing much. Shots um, of keys. Shots of keys, yeah. it's it, like it, it, I do appreciate the fact that it's taking time to set up and... When we get to the action bits, it's a bit more exciting and we're more engaged as as viewers because we've made a connection with Elliot and with E.T. and with these other characters. But it is quite, not slow, but not fast, I guess. They linger on a lot of shots that they didn't have to. It was a bit unnecessary. Yeah. Very much, again, like Star Wars. Uh, we've been making comments about Star Wars the entire time. Mm. And, you know, the, the pacing of... of Star Wars, hmm. uh, you know, you've got that first half hour on Tatooine, just mm. like, I am an angsty farm boy. And it kind of felt that same sort of feel of, we're going to have slow reaction shots. And here we are, we're going to be in silence for the first 10 minutes as we get to know these characters, hmm. which hmm. you wouldn't have in a modern film. But is that necessarily a bad thing? Not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I, I was rolling with it. Again, I think if it was just me, I would have gotten bored. I'm like, okay, I'm moving on now. I'm going to mm. go make myself a cup of tea and get my knitting out and mm. see what happens. Mm. Yeah. Dan, obviously, you said last time you watched this, it was a few years ago. Um, how was it now as a uh, an older man of the world? Uh, how how was it accessing this film? Was there anything new that stood stood out for you? Yeah, now that I've seen some shit, um, yeah, <laughs> I appreciated it more. Uh, honestly, though, I I was quite surprised how much more I did enjoy it. Perhaps you're right in that, um, Sarah. In that, uh, yeah, watching it with people made a lot of the difference because I think last time I watched it I was it was probably yeah on TV and I was just like bored and flicking through and it's like okay yep it's on whatever I'm sick on the couch what's yeah. happening you yeah know? that's mm. that sort of thing um yes uh, a lot stands up far better than I would have imagined and that I maybe did imagine like in my mind's eye the puppetry was terrible mm. and the effects were like awful and the acting was bad like yeah, in my, in my memory, this is an awful film. And watching it again, I'm like, you know what? Chill out, Dan. This is all right. <laughs> it, it is pretty good. I mean, the special effects are still serviceable um, to quite good. Mm. Uh, obviously, the the components which we would consider to be CGI, like the, the spaceship taking off and... Green the, screen the, stuff. The, yeah, the green screen stuff, the flying bikes, mm. isn't like... doesn't have the visual fidelity of something that today would have, but it works. Yeah. Like, it doesn't look... It doesn't look awful, and it doesn't look so bad that you're going, God, what a terrible film, because mm. the, the bikes look awful. Um, but, yeah, the, the puppetry stuff re remains extremely good. Yeah, not bad. Mm. Um, and I think that is one of the benefits of a physical puppet, mm. as opposed to trying to do, not that they could, but trying to do, yeah, some mm. sort of CGI, is, is it, it stands a longer test of time. Um, yeah, and, and the child acting is quite remarkable. Mm. Like, uh, especially Drew Barrymore I've oh, got to yeah. say MVP like <laughs> every time she was on screen I was like yeah what are you going to do kid mm. she's yeah. she's great and the, the fact that she would have been six to seven years old when they were shooting that as well is it, it, it is she's great 
I feel like they they just didn't give her any lines and she just improved everything <laughs> because she it sounded natural. Yeah, she did she did improv some stuff. I'm pretty sure the um that one where she talks back to him. Uh it talks back to her brother where it's like um Give me a break. Give me a break. That's it. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was apparently improvised and things like that. But yeah, the kids were all good. I I, I really appreciated um, Michael in this one, the older brother, because I rewatching mm. this, I was like, oh yeah, he does have an older brother. But I because I remembered so little about him, I mm. thought he was going to be like one of those typical older brothers from these films where he's like, no, Dorcas, get out of here, and he's just never a help. But he did say something like Dorcas, which yeah. was quite fun. But but he does pretty quickly become involved in the story mm. and becomes very much um, just a big part of the tale. And mm. I thought that uh, Robert Robert McNaughton, who played him, did a did a great job. Yeah, um, I do like the scene where he first encounters ET, mm. uh, and like even even before he's he's seen him and he's like making fun of Elliot for for making him swear this big promise. He's still like you know oh, okay okay I swear and and he like. Gives him the benefit of the doubt. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I always imagine um, older brothers in these sort of films and, and, like, parents and stuff. It's like, automatically, they're villains of a, of a sort. Um, mm. And they just won't believe the, the hero of the story. And, mm. and yeah, they, they really get behind him. And I mean, they do set that up a little bit. We were mm. talking, um, um, as we watched the film, about the way it's shot. Mm. Um, you know, from a child slash ET's perspective, mm. so you can always see people's legs and the keys, and you're always looking up at things, or mm. you know that you're seeing the the door handle rather than anything else, which makes it quite sinister. Mm. Like, because all the adults in the film are actually trying to help, but they're set up as the bad guys. Mm. Their setup is like you know who the you know. CIA or whatever, the FBI are chasing mm. him down and well, NASA's coming NASA, yeah. <laughs> NASA is evil and mm. is going to take your alien and like dissect it, which is not what happens. No, I, I really remembered there being a lot more like government people chatting and going, well, we're going to go and t- cut ET apart. Oh mm. yeah, we're definitely going to do that. No, that's not in this film. The kids film. just assume it. Yeah, which is like, I, I, I think is really interesting that it feels as though the film has even been written from like a child's retelling of these events as opposed to what actually happened like like the scene the scene in the school um biology class has two <laughs> it has too yeah, many yeah let's frogs. talk about this yes let's talk about well, that it, it has it has too many frogs but that feels like it would be an embellishment that a child would make similarly i i the, when we're starting to see the connection between et and elliot and how they're affecting each other and because et is watching the tv program of the man and the woman from the noir film getting together and kissing and so he recreates that with the student in his class but he stands on top of the kid that bullied him it just all feels like it's like that power fantasy yeah. for Elliot that it is it is being enacted and so in the retelling of the story he's like yeah I totally pushed the bully over and then like stood on him and then like kissed the hot girl in class mm. and then got dragged away which was so unnecessary mm. like just oh like my God. forcing this random heteronormativity into this kid's film. Sarah, I don't know if you know about heteronormative relationships, but that's how they all start. We <laughs> we all just suddenly like win a fight and then make out with someone of the opposite sex. That explains things because I never had that experience as a child. Yeah. And that is why <laughs> now I am asexual. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, a couple, couple of straight lows lads, Diane and I, you know, we were constantly fighting in biology class. Look, I... if the biology kid had grabbed me and kissed me, maybe I'd be straight now. <laughs> maybe. And I've lost count of the number of times that I've watched the person who's kissed me run away from authority figure and just raised my my one of my legs in a little <laughs> coy gesture. Yeah, with a little frog hopping over your shoe. That was, oh, wow. that was so fun. I like that theory of that's the retelling because mm. Elliot's supposed to be feeling drunk because mm. E.T.'s had the alcohol. So if it's a drunk retelling, then yeah, that, mm. that fills in a few of those sort of plot holes and yeah i like that yeah i mean elliot himself we have to say uh, played by henry thomas really good mm. <laughs> like um uh, you know we we often talk about um the the relative uh, success or, or lack of success of child childhood actors from these films from yesteryear um he was very good in this film though like he, he's fantastic He's pretty fantastic the as Elliot. Parts in the hospital or in in the like mm. medical tent um, are yeah really really quite, quite impressive yeah. and and like his his physicality of it all and uh, his vocalizations yeah very very cool. Mm. I was tearing up a bit. 
Yeah, yeah, me too, which really surprised me. Um, did he go on to do anything he's, else? He's still a professional actor. Oh. E.T. E- e- is the biggest thing that he was in, uh, and the second biggest thing was the 2019 Xfinity commercial that was uh, the sequel to E.T. <laughs> that was a good sequel. Yeah, we, we watched the, co- the commercial straight afterwards uh, just because um, we wanted to see the sequel. Funnily uh, enough, I'd actually yeah. seen that commercial before. Oh, really? Yeah, it turns yeah. out I'm watching going, this looks familiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, um, I, I mean, he, he's been in... He's still working now. Uh, Henry Henry Thomas, the kid from ET, who is fifty years old now, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but no, he he's consistently worked in in films and television hmm. since then. Just nothing that has been as big as a success as ET. Which it's probably to, good. To be fair, there's not a lot that is that big. He was hmm. in Doctor Sleep, the 2019 sequel to The Shining. He played the bartender uh, slash Jack Torrance. So when uh, it was Ewan McGregor that was in that film, wasn't it? When Ewan McGregor is in the recreation of the Outlook Hotel and he's talking to the bartender, that's the kid from E.T. You've blown my tiny mind. I didn't know there was a sequel to that. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good as well. And McGregor and I are in it. Yes, Ewan McGregor. <laughs> yeah, you're both <laughs> you're both in it. Um, but but yeah, he's 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 very good in this. Um, and I, I think obviously that. That's really important to this film working because if mm. we don't like Elliot, I think it's really hard to to like the film. I think it's why the first two Home Alone films are so well liked because Macaulay Culkin is just quite a great screen presence. Mm. Whereas I'm still shocked I liked that film. Mm, whereas the third Home Alone film, uh, which um, is objectively like it's pretty bad, but it's not that much worse than some of the other Home Alones, but it really suffers from the fact that it's not Macaulay Culkin. I've not seen it and have no desire to. No, it's, you shouldn't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But simply because there's these two other ones that exist that Mm. are fantastic. Um, But yeah, you've got, um, you've got this, this central relationship between Elliot and E.T. and this combination of like child actors and puppets. um, Two People you should never work with on set. Oh, and there was an animal. There so. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a dog, there was a rabbit, there was a deer at one point. Um, oh my. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, it does feel as though... It, it's weird looking at E.T. 40 years on and thinking about the fact that it it couldn't... This could have been a bad film. <laughs> like, like, on paper, not knowing that it's E.T. beloved film that people have watched for 40 years. Like, going into this, coming into 1982... It's one of those films that you look at and you go, oh, I mean, Spielberg's done some good films, but is, is E.T. going to work a kid's film about aliens? Ooh. But but it really, it's great. It's just it's just really fun. Um, the, I mean, the story is E.T.'s an alien. Uh, they get trapped on Earth uh, when they were picking flowers and the spaceship took off because some guys in trucks turned up. Um, and then he meets the young boy, Elliot. Uh, they mess around for an hour and then the government turns up. <laughs> It uh, sounds even worse when you say it like that. They mess around for an hour, you know, yeah. eat Reese's Pieces and, you know... Um, hide in the cupboard. Hide in the cupboard, you know, you know just normal kid stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the government turn up. And um, the, the thing is, is my memory of this film was always that the government turned up and they were like, whoa, yeah, we're, we're big and bad and we're going to do this. But they turn up and, like, at that point, E.T. and Elliot have gotten really sick. And they have that, like, shared connection that has now turned into this shared illness. And yeah, it's just really interesting. And maybe it's because it's my first time watching it as an adult. But I'm like, man, if the kids were just like honest about what was going on, this might have gone better for them a little bit. I also agree. And yeah. remember, yeah, the, the my memory of this movie is clearly pretty poor. Um, uh, that sh- they were fine until the government stepped in and separated them. Mm. That's what I remember is them getting separated. And that's what makes him sick. But mm. it was absolutely not that. As as yeah. you said, they were they were sick before, and w- yeah, without their intervention, would maybe, probably maybe Elliot would have died. Well, yeah, they probably would have both died because you know again it was that thing of Elliot only started getting better once ET started to decline health wise. Mm. Um, I'm assuming that's because he got sick when he was outside that night, and ET was using the connection to heal him. Mm. And once they were he was healed, and they were no longer connected, mm. ET was able to start regenerating him- themselves. That's a that's a good theory. Interesting. I like that. Mm. He just needed a little nap in the cryo freezer. Yeah, just he just to... needed mm. some cold because he's from space and they're from space, and you know, space is cold. Space is cold. Space is cold. Scientifically correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
to be honest, there's not a lot to this film plot-wise. It is very much more a film of atmosphere and a film of... Yes. It's very genre-driven mm. because, you know, it's it's that, that kid's focus. Mm. And, you know, as we're watching it, you know, I kept thinking about, you know, if this was a different genre, mm. we'd have a completely different perspective. You know, we'd be on the, the government perspective probably mm. uh, if it was done you know in 2022 mm. and you'd be like yeah guns blazing here we go oh these kids we're gonna like go rescue these kids who are you know having mess being messed about with aliens oh mm. it's you or, know or there'd be a more direct threat to either the family or to et or to both of them oh america would you know nearly explode at some point yeah <laughs> well yes. i think this is a really good time dan to talk about stranger things oh when Which... isn't <laughs> yeah true uh, well, before we got to this point in the podcast, I th- I'd say, because obviously Stranger <laughs> Things, particularly the first season of it, which I think is probably what we should focus on. So folks at home who haven't quite caught up with the latest season, mm. um, we- we're not going to spoil anything for that. Yes. But that first season of Stranger Things is essentially, a, uh, whilst being a love letter to so much of the 80s, mm. is kind of a remake of E.T. in a lot of ways. Defin- yeah, definitely heavy influences yeah. with so much of it. But within that first season of E.T., there is you know that there is a consistent threat to the young boy, mm. um, in this case, Michael in Stranger Things, and to the other who is uh, 11. Mm. We're aware there is a consistent threat that is coming for both of them. Mm. Whereas watching E.T., we know there's the keys guy, oh. but it's not it's not quite the same. No, no, you can't quite generate the same level of, of threat just from showing keys every now and then that, that i think that was what one of one of the things that drew me out every time and i just laughed because it makes sense it's showing it's the same character and stuff but i don't know they could have done anything else than the keys funnily enough watching the keys reminded me of a weird experience i had a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when i was trying to find property so i could build a house mm-hmm. um lovely and- house that Thank we're in right now <laughs> Uh, so when I was trying to figure out where I'd go, um, we went to this like land place and there was, you know, this guy selling land who laughed when we came in because all the land was sold, but he kept trying to talk to us. <laughs> land for sale. <laughs> no, there's no land for you. <laughs> yeah, okay, get, get lost, you morons. But like he, he had his, the entire time we were talking, his hands were in his pocket and he was jingling his keys. Except in like a weird fondly sort of way, which made me like feel really creeped out yeah. the whole time. I'm like, can we please leave now? Like this guy, like, and just the entire time, it's like jingle, jingle, jingle. So yeah, every time Keys guy was on the screen, I was like, is it, he's going to be bad because yeah. I have bad experiences with key jingling. Did did you um, did you end up buying land from this land? I did band? not. Oh, funnily, funnily yeah. not. Yeah. Mm. I would have had a better bus route if I had, but mm. also it wouldn't have been built yet. So yeah, true. <laughs> All these keys belong to the houses I have not sold. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... The tie-ins yeah. with Stranger Things yes. are so many. Uh, I mean, they're playing what looks like Dungeons & Dragons right well, at the start, yeah. the kids. I mean, Steven Spielberg played Dungeons & Dragons no. the year it came out in uh, 1974. And did. so yeah. originally mm-hmm. the, the film was going to end with an extra scene where those boys were all playing Dungeons and Dragons, but now Elliot was the game master, or the dungeon master. Except it was all part of their game. No, it was. they were still going to be like, man, remember that alien? Stop talking about it. (laughs) No, it was going to be like that, but they made the decision to cut it because they were like, actually, no, that last scene is really emotionally brilliant and nothing else needs to be said. End credit scene. Mm. That's what it would have been if it was done these days. Yeah, an end credit scene. Mm. Um, It... It is quite an emotionally affecting film, mm. I would say. I, I did find at moments in this where I was like, yeah, you, you, you go get him, E.T. and Elliot. You go. Yeah, like those feelings coming through of just like, yeah, this is good. And I'm trying to pin down what it is about this film that does that. Well, you mentioned uh, both that the pace was like, yeah, pretty, pretty slow mm. at the start. And it felt almost like two films. Like you could have watched the entire film with just the the pacing of the first half of you know nothing really much happens and it's just a fun romp with with these two friends Mm. um but then all of a sudden when stuff starts to get a bit more dramatic it it happens really fast and then it seems like it could get really dark like Mm. um Mm. the yeah the there is one part that i feel came out of nowhere which was the the hefty government response yeah. when E.T. is back alive again and the kids are running away. Mm. Like, they seem like they want to kill them. Get all. the guns! Yeah. Mm. Um, and and that, that does seem a, a little bit out of nowhere 
to me. Um, mm. but and just given how many of them there are, like mm. that was a big response. Mm. Yeah, but word has gotten out. We've got an alien. Like, can you imagine how just in general the world would respond today if it was mm. like, oh, by the way, we found an alien in Sacramento. And like, you know, yeah, he's, he's in this house. Like... Yeah, there'd be a lot of law enforcement there. You bet sure. your bottom dollar they'd be there. Because... I suppose they've had 15 hours to um, mm. react. That's true. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dan, I think we should talk about the guns. We should. Mm. Uh, this version that we watched, which was on a, an Australian streaming service, uh, Stan, for those unacquainted with it, um, had the guns. Um, which uh, was the question you had before we started. Uh, would they have guns or would they have walkie-talkies? It was very important to me. Well, why is it important? Uh, oh, well, actually, I think I just I, I think I wanted to see the walkie-talkie version because I I don't remember se- I would have seen the older version, um, mm. and I don't remember seeing the version with walkie-talkies. I've I've just seen like stills from from it and, and internet articles about it and stuff. Um, so I I think I was hoping to mm. see some lazily edited walkie-talkies. Yeah. Um. So the reason for the discrepancy for the uninitiated is that um, Spielberg spent about $100,000 on the 20th anniversary re-release of the movie in 2002. Uh, in this new version, which was released theatrically as well as on DVD, uh, there were some additional scenes, some small CGI enhancements of the E.T. puppet, and in uh, the scene where Elliot and his friends escape from the FBI, the rifles held by the agents uh, were digitally replaced with walkie-talkies. Um, Spielberg stated that he always regretted using this scene in the first place and that he would remove it if he ever reissued the film. However, in 2011, he changed his mind again, uh, stating that there would be no more digital alterations of his movie and urged people to watch E.T. in its original unaltered 1982 version. So oh, the that's blu- rich. Yeah, yeah. So the blu If only George Lucas had done the same. <laughs> oh. Uh, the Blu-ray and UHD editions uh, that were later released contain only the original theatrical release. Uh, the version with the walkie-talkies has now gone out of circulation. Mm. So it's this weird thing where maybe he wants us to buy three copies of the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what yeah, it is. He's, he's done a lazy sort of version of Clue. Yeah. Well, he needed to make that money back that you put into the, <laughs> yes. the remastering. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I, I remember at the time when that happened because he... And because also it was around the time that Lucas had made the the re-release of Star Wars mm. with, you know, like Jabba the Hutt is now there in CGI and Han Solo has to like be digitally lifted <laughs> to stand on his tail and all of these different things. And I remember that just getting a lot of criticism. Uh, people really despise that move. Um, it's because it was a shit right move. So, yeah. 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 And the so, people are right. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where I kind of look at it and go, uh, I guess it's a big deal. But at the same time, I don't know. I think maybe it's a, it's a big deal if you can't then access the original. That that's which, sure. which yeah. obviously is a big issue with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that you couldn't access unless you went to very special places on the internet. You mm. couldn't access this this original cut version without the CG enhancements that were done later. For ET, it feels like it's less of an issue, though. Um, sure, yeah. Like I, I kind of agree with Spielberg, where it's like, yeah, showing police officers with like big rifles as there's these kids on bikes is kind of like, oh, I, I, it's not not that it's problematic, but that it maybe seems a bit heavy-handed. Oh, well, actually, sure. it seems a bit too true to life when you mm. consider American guns, kids, yeah. and that combo. Certainly, they didn't aim the guns at the kids ever, though. Like, the the time when they mm. were... Oh, there was one time when the, the, a bunch of them were holding those revolvers and they came around the side of a van, mm. like, looking for, for whomever. But, um, yeah, they... You know, actually, the more I think about it, the more I'm okay with it, because <laughs> a lot of those kids pulled down masks over their um, faces on the bikes mm. to cover for the stump doubles. Mm. Um, and so... For a lot of the the like responders who came there, they wouldn't have known whether they were kids or some foreign agency stealing an alien body. <laughs> yeah, on on BMXs. Hey, they outran the police uh, cruisers. True. They did some pretty cool stunts at the same time. Yeah, one of the things that I really did quite like about the presence of the government and the and the police force from the perspective of this being a child's film, though, is that. They felt sinister, but in a way that made sense to children. Like the van that listened in on the conversations was not... I mean, obviously, like, you know, 
overreach and government surveillance is is an issue. But mm. the way it was presented was it's one guy in a van who's just driving down the street listening, and then he listening finds his bedtime story. Yeah, finds the house that they're interested in and keeps listening. Mm. Um, but I, I felt that that was all presented in a really interesting way and, and quite an engaging way for the reveal of that. Oh, they're not actually in this film. They're not that bad in terms of like. Yeah, it's an alien. Yeah, they're going to take the alien away. And when E.T.'s dead, they're obviously going to go and cut him up and find out how this alien operates. But at the same time, yeah, all the things that felt villainous were... Implied. Implied villainy. Yeah, it's like because the van was black and, and creeping along at night and things like that. Even when, now that I think about it, when when they uh, when E.T. first lands... And get separated because the the humans in the in the trucks arrive and, and are searching with their torches. None of them appear to be armed, mm. and they're all just um, they're yeah probably detected some sort of craft or something like that. And they're mm. all looking with urgency, but none of them are really doing anything violent. Well, um, from the sound of it, Key's guy, who obviously ends up with the mum at the end because that's your everything, he has been <laughs> um, looking for aliens for his whole life since He's he was 10 years old. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it's basically if, if Elliot, when he was an adult, was mm. like, oh, I think I saw a, another alien spaceship. Better go see if my friend is here. So, And went searching. That implies then that Key's, if what Key's was saying was true, and if Key's and E.T. met previously... E.T. doesn't like that guy because... <laughs> Maybe it wasn't E.T. though. Maybe it was a different alien. Possibly. Yeah, that part, actually, I don't remember from previous watchings and now I don't know how to take it. Are you both taking it that physically there was an encounter that this guy had, that Keys had ages ago that sort of propelled him to, to go into this line of work? I feel like he saw something. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not it was a proper encounter or he saw a UFO or like something happened, minor or major, mm. it's not really implied which, mm. but that made him go into that line of work. Interesting. When it initially started happening in, in this screening, I was like, oh, he's just saying it to get on the kid's side mm. so that he can then like betray him later because everyone's a bastard. <laughs> and then obviously that doesn't turn out. Um, you know, he's there almost as a father figure, as you, as you do say, a potential father figure going forward. Um, but yeah, he's... My reading of it this time was, yeah, he, he has had some sort of extraterrestrial com- contact, even if it's not with E.T. specifically. Mm. Um, although I, it, it almost feels as though there's like a little look of recognition when he first sees E.T. Or if not, ah, my friend, it's I've seen this alien before so he might have met another of the species as you say sarah that um maybe didn't like him i guess i don't know (laughs) maybe he was healed he was in the war and he Mm. was healed by the alien i want to know i love this the thing is though whatever that alien encounter was it clearly involved keys (laughs) because that's the only reason we would have so much focus on those keys maybe he was locked in a closet Mm. Like E.T. was. Yeah. With Maybe all the he got locked. Maybe the alien locked him in and he couldn't get out and the alien flew off and he was like, if I always have keys, if I always have keys on me, I can never get locked in. I can in. never get locked in and I can be with my alien friend. And no one told him how keys work and a specific <laughs> yeah. key to a specific lock. He had every key in the world. Yeah. Like, you tell. <laughs> it, the way he jingled like and jangled. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I think one of the interesting things watching this film is the uh, film's slightly lackadaisical approach to... Um, the fact that there is no comeuppance for the fact that Elliot appeared to be drunk at school. Well, you get the slight overhe- overhearing of the conversation of um, the mum on the phone. And then when she gets home, um, being like, I'm not buying all that frog. Although there was many frogs and mm. stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, clearly teachers really pissed. Mm. Pun not intended. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's a whole thing going on in the background. Mm. I want to see the film from that teacher's perspective. Yeah, that would yeah. be interesting. And That's I think it's the perspective thing is we don't see the, you know, what happens because it's from Elliot's perspective. Mm. And by the time, you know, everything's sorted out, I'm pretty sure the mum would be like, oh, yeah, there was an alien involved. I'm not going to punish you. Mm. Mm. I could see that you were linked. You're not the one who got drunk. You couldn't help it. Mm. Why would he be But punished? in that moment, she sees the beer cans. Yes. She gets the call going... Your son appears to be intoxicated. The fact that she lets him go out for Halloween is the thing that surprised me. It's true. Also, that, she keeps mm. sniffing the can as if she doesn't know what it is. Yeah. When it's obviously her beer. Yeah. yeah she's like, the, there's no other adult there. Yeah, she's yeah. the only one that could legally buy it and have it. 
I think with letting him go out for Halloween, she had her own plans. <laughs> oh. They were not going to be derailed by oh, a yes. little drinking yeah. problem. No, no that, Definitely. That, that outfit very much suggested uh, with the little mask and the cat ears. Like there was, there was an adult Halloween party that she wanted to go. I mean, she's a nearly 100%. single mum. Maybe uh, Keys guy was there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's maybe the mum's keys. Yeah. <laughs> it may, maybe a keys in the bowl party. We don't know, but yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was it, it was kind of interesting. I, I really do think Spielberg does quite a good job of portraying these like quote unquote broken homes as they were considered at the time. And like remembering that, you know, films from 40 years ago and a lot of media from 40 years ago weren't showing anything but nuclear families sure, yeah. mm. that often in a positive light. And I don't think this film goes out to go, yeah, the single parent household is like extremely positive and great and fine. You know, there were difficulties. And the fact that you can't mention Mexico without it causing the, the mum to kind of shut down because of the issue with, with their with, with the former husband. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are still these difficulties and, and things of that nature. But I think it's also, yeah, looking back on it, it's probably quite novel having this sort of quite... Paul, having this quite positive portrayal of of a single parent family in mm. in this film, and yeah, obviously it's something that we're a lot more used to now. And you know, now we're used to all sorts of different family units being represented and being represented positively in in mm. media as well. That certainly weren't being done thirty, forty years ago. So I, I do wonder if part of ET's success as a film is is because of that. Is because it was one of these forerunners mm. in in showing maybe something closer to the reality of suburban life in America. Yeah, that's true. And you're know, speaking of, you know, the, the single parent uh, not punishing the son for being drunk at school. That actually feels quite realistic as well. Um, you know, I was raised by a single mum, and if there were things that had to be done, um, you know, and the kids had to look after each other for a while or you had to be home alone for a while, then mm. that's what had to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the punishment can wait because, mm-hmm. you know, I've got things to do yeah. and, you know, chores to get done and all of that. So, you know, there, there is that sort of give and take and that negotiation that mm. would not necessarily have happened in a, a two-parent household. Yeah, totally, yeah. And, yeah, deciding which which hill and which battle you want to do and yeah. whether you've got the energy to, to punish someone. Yeah, because yeah. she's been working all day, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know she's trying to raise three kids. She's got Drew Barrymore going, "Mom, look at this! Mom, look at this!" The whole <laughs> she's time. She's got kids calling each other penis breath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you know she's she's got a lot. Of, she's got trying to like do the chores. The house is a bit of a mess. Um, the lights are off in half the house because she always walks out of darkness. In <laughs> yeah, every there's scene. always shadows everywhere. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. Mm. Mm. I mean, it makes sense with the puppets. It makes mm. sense um, as well with the perspective. Like yeah. in the kids' perspective, everything's sure, a bit yeah. darker mm. because in their mind, creepy things are happening mm. when that's not necessarily true. Okay, I think we've gone far enough into this this review that we now probably should talk about E.T., the actual <laughs> character. Nah. Because um, I feel like we've talked around E.T. quite a bit, but the character of E.T. is the real triumph of this film for me at least it's it's the thing that i think this film has done incredibly well is to make this quite frankly pretty ugly puppet (laughs) like this this very other um puppet even though it's got like some quite friendly features and uh you know it's got these these big eyes that we we can follow and you know it's it's sort of friend shaped in a way but it's but at the same time, it's not. And it's got this weird extending, unextending neck and the arms are much longer than the feet. And, and it pulses and it's yeah, wet. Yeah, and it's quite wet a lot yeah. of the time. But, it, a, oh, but, yeah. but I don't think anyone gets to the end of that film and goes, man, I hated that little guy, that little interloper, like, boo. Interloper. Yeah, like, E.T.'s e- great. And E.T. is like a really distinctive, well-known character. If you have a drawing of E.T., most people go, oh, it's E.T. They won't go... What happened to that person? My <laughs> gosh. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just think it's a real triumph of both design and and puppeteering, as, as you say. Um, and, and Dan, you've got a bit of experience with puppetry, is my mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose from, from that perspective, like what, what is it about E.T. Um, as a 
as a performative instrument, if that's how we talk about puppets. Or, that or... is how I talk about puppets. Okay. <laughs> um, what is it that this that they've achieved to to make this character seem so alive? Mm. Well, I think um, I think Ellen actually who was watching it with us um, uh, hit the nail on the head with. Uh, E.T. had a lot of micro-expressions which were subtle and ever-present, like, except for the times when E.T. was dead or playing, you know, still and and, and doll-like or or something like that. Yeah, always in motion, always alive. There were very few moments when he acted like an inanimate object, Mm. um, and that was necessary to the story. Um, uh, The times when he needed to be more dexterous and maybe they were using you know other other just just the hands or something like that were well done and it was never like in a clearly it, it was never like the distinction of using real hands like in um say thunderbirds or something like that yeah it was it was it was never oh there's a person just off screen there um and uh also i think the the bold choices in its design helped like it it looks a little bit frightening, a little bit ugly, and then it proves itself to you the way it proves itself to Elliot. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's constantly being alive definitely helps. Mm. And the the detail that I absolutely missed um, first was the pulsing of E.T.'s veins mm. and the dilating of the pupils and contracting the pupils. Mm. They're like... Those two things lent so much to it. Yeah, it's very expressive as a puppet. Mm. And it sort of made me think, wonder, like, how many people are controlling it? Mm. Like, is it, you know, you know, is, is there some animatronic stuff going on there? Mm. You know, like, how, how was this put together? Mm. Yeah, my guess would be it was someone in a suit and then almost a little bit like Hoggle from Labyrinth. So mm. they, they had their own hands and um, then there was an animatronic head. And, so mm. they and someone sort of... else was, you know... Yeah. Doing yeah. the head. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So I, I can tell you that um, at, at times they, they did use um, gloved hands. So mm. they made these these replica hands that were gloves for some of the fine motor mm. skill stuff that we needed to see E.T. do. And they got a mime artist in to then figure out what those movements would be to create this non-human movement. Um, so that, yeah, so that it still looked alien. It was it, it created that sensation of, oh, this isn't just somebody's hands. This is... These are ET's hands. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it never, it never looked. Um, the the movements never looked human. And yeah. There was one moment where ET was eating and had something on the side of its face. It was so good for ages, mm. and it looked like um, I, I, I don't know how they they did it. It may have been like hands and separate head or something like that. But mm. there was a point where ET, yeah, just like delicately picked it off the side of its mouth and and pulled it away. And that would have been so hard to do mm. if you were in the suit because you wouldn't have been able to see anything. Yeah, you wouldn't have, you know, known it was there. Yeah, really. and yeah. and it really, it really lent so much. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of the budget, in fact, I can tell you, almost ten percent of the film's budget went on the animatronics and puppetry. So it uh, the, so basically, a million dollars because this film cost ten point five million dollars. Um, which you know, not not a not an insignificant amount in 1982 money. Yeah, inflation. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, a tenth of the budget went on making ET work and worthwhile. Yeah, you absolutely worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Um, th- most of the full body puppetry was performed by a stuntman who was two foot ten tall. Nice. Um, so there were obviously a lot of mm. that. For the scene in the kitchen, though, they used a 12-year-old boy who was born without legs but was an expert at walking on his hands. Wow. So in that scene where it's the mum and she's, ne- she's never quite looking at E.T., where E.T. is at that time, but Gertie can see him. And he's like, Mum, the friend's here. That's this 12-year-old boy who they've dressed up like E.T. and he walks on his hands to create that movement. Amazing. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, like it's, but it's all done in a way where at no point did I go, Oh, that's where the stuntman is. Even though logically mm. it makes sense that you mm. couldn't achieve that with a puppet, the entire time I'm like, oh, what's ET doing now? Like, mm. you know, it was, there was there was no moment where I went, my God, this puppet's amazing. Mm. It was look at this character, L- look at them go, like that kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 just a real triumph of design. Well, and mm. part of um, you know the joy of the puppet, I think, and that kept coming up for us was the sound. 
Mm. Um, yeah, we were talking a lot about the music and the sound effects as well. I think that links us back to Star Wars too, because they <laughs> obviously shared mm. um, the the files of um, what sounds were available at the time. Yeah. They probably had the same team. I mean, they certainly shared the composer. Yeah, well, uh, that's yeah. true. Was, yeah, um, where's Darth Vader? Yeah, yeah, the breathing helmet guys yeah. coming in from NASA. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I do think the sound design is is pretty incredible as well. I think that is the other thing, having watched this film just then, that's making me go, oh, that's why this works, because they really, really emphasised Foley work, that like the sound design. The fact that the guy with the keys, every step he took, there was a ching, ching of keys going past the entire time. Um, in fact, I, I've got my little Foley keys here. We can do it. So, yeah, whenever he was walking around, it was a lot of... Elliot, are you okay? Elliot, he spoke to me when I was 10. Like, <laughs> it's like he was wearing spurs. That, that, <laughs> I, thought, I felt that was a bit much. Yeah, um, it, it may be a little bit. But but like, like the sounds that E.T. made were so... Just not what I was expecting. Well, it was kind <laughs> of like an Ewok mixed with a Tauntaun, mixed with a Jawa. Like, you know, they were just... It was very Star Warsy in the sound mm. effects. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I particularly in the screams. I mm. as soon as you mentioned that, it just it, it blew my tiny mind. Mm. And yeah, that was all I could think of was, oh God, it smell even worse on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> um E.T.'s voice was provided by Pat Welsh, who was an elderly woman who lived in Marin County, California. Marvelous. Uh, she smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. <laughs> which is why For the role. <laughs> for the no, she she was doing that before, buddy. <laughs> Uh, but that's why her voice had that quality, uh, which is um, why the sound effects creator, Ben Burt, hired her for that. Um, so she spent nine and a half hours recording her part. Uh, she was paid $380 to play that role. Mm. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, look, if this film had been a flop, maybe that would have been like a good 380 to make. But... Uh, yeah, no, I think she was a little unfortunate there. Yeah, royalties, um, come on. Yeah, uh, Bert also recorded uh, 16 other people and various animals to create E.T.'s voice. So it's not just Pat Walsh's voice. It Pat Welsh's voice, sorry. It's not just Pat Welsh's voice. It's other people's voices mixed in at different times. So Spielberg's voice is in there. Um, Deborah Winger. He got his cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bert's sleeping wife, uh, who had a cold, was recorded as part of this. Um he was he must have been in bed going, God, that noise is is otherworldly. You sound like an alien who's dying. Funnily enough, that that's a thing that happens. Because you know, that happened on Lord of the Rings as well. Hmm. Where oh. Fran Walsh had a really bad cold. Um, so she did some Nazgul sound effects, the screeching. What? Because she had a cold. So hmm. this is a sound effects thing. Just wait until someone is sick. And the Nazgul do sniff all the time. Yeah. Okay, yeah, there yeah, we that go. Wasn't it in the script. She was just dripping <laughs> mucus in the booth. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, other sound effects included a burp from uh, Bert's USC film professor. <laughs> hey, hey, professor, can you come in and do a burp, please? Um, as well as the noises of raccoons, sea otters, and horses. So there was a big old cavalcade of, of noises being mixed in to create E.T. It, it's E.T.'s scream. That is the one that always jumps out for me. Yeah. That kind of like weird, like you can't replicate it. It's just so. Can we try? Go on, <laughs> I think it's just... <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's... Have a cold. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but... All right. I'll do this in my own time. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other sound effect, if we want to call it that, though, that does elevate this is John Williams. <laughs> like it's. I mean, everything he does is exact, exactly the same. Yeah. Like but every time you see his his name on the screen, you're like, okay, I know what I'm about to hear. And yet we still want it. That's the thing is like his, his soundtracks, are still, like even the the stuff he's done for the new Obi-Wan series, the, the new theme he did for, for Obi-Wan is like, this is good. John Williams knows what he's doing. <laughs> like it's, and, and yeah, the E.T. theme is just lovely and it's got these soaring motifs to it. And it's, it's just delightful. And yeah, mm, yeah, I I agree with both of you. It it is it is the same as everything he does. Yeah, but it is delightful. Yeah, I mean it does work, and and he has a very eighties vibe mm, mm, with his mm. music. It's a good thing he was around in the nineteen eighties, though. Yeah. Otherwise, that would have been disastrous. <laughs> 
Uh, would you guys like some trivia about E.T.? Oh, God, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. Mm. Uh, the first bit of trivia. Uh, the end of the film was one of the most significant musical experiences for the composer, John Williams. Uh, he made several attempts to match the score to the film. You mean he actually watched the film? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, he, he, he watches the scenes he's trying to score things. <laughs> like, he's not just going, yeah, here's, uh, oh, a Darth Vader's coming in. Uh, da, 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 da. No, no, uh, darker. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, Very John Williams. So after he'd made several attempts and it wasn't quite working, Spielberg took the film uh, off the screen and said, said to Williams, just conduct the orchestra as though you're at a concert and we'll recut the ending around your orchestration. <laughs> that's wow, cool. that's, that's some faith in a... I mean, if you're going to have yeah, faith in a composer, sure, yeah. 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 So they did this. Spielberg only had to slightly re-edit the film to match the music. So it was oh. more about the, the, the length of shots as opposed to shot right. placement. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, but this was unusual because obviously normally it's the other way around. That's how they were trying to do it. Uh, the result was that Williams won the 1982 Academy Award for Best Original Score. Uh, he recreated this at his last performance with the LA Philharmonic Orchestra at the Hollywood Bowl in 2013, uh, conducting the orchestra live while the last reel was shown on Jumbotrons. Cool. But yeah, so they, they he had enough faith. He was like, okay, John, I've seen Star Wars. You, you like, I've seen how your music basically makes an okay film fantastic um please just do what you're gonna do and we'll work around you yeah yeah i i guess at that point you would absolutely be fine with with putting that in his hands yeah uh speaking of star wars mm-hmm. uh, in the halloween scene where et uh sees a child in a yoda costume a very realistic yoda mask yeah i don't remember it being as as good as that that was Almost hyper-realistic. Mm. Uh, but yes, when E.T. sees um, the child in the Yoda mask um, and seems to recognise him, this was an inside joke from Spielberg on his good friend and Star Wars creator George Lucas. Lucas returned the favour in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace when in the Galactic Senate there are shots of all the various species and one of the species are the E.T. species they're in the bottom right-hand corner, all in their little pod, going <laughs> home, home. And of course, yeah, you can look online and you can find all sorts of. Oh yeah, it is a force-sensitive, if not Jedi. I person. mean, obviously, they yeah. were using the force. Yeah, lots of telekinesis, lots of healing powers. <laughs> like you just need a little lightsaber. Would he be a little flippy guy like Yoda? Do we reckon? Probably. Oh, no yeah, lightsaber probably. There were enough similarities. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, Gertie looks down at E.T. and says, I don't like his feet. This was a Drew Barrymore ad lib. Um, she was actually referring to all the wires that were coming out the bottom of the E.T. puppet that they were using for that bit. Uh, and they just kept it in. Nice. <laughs> I think you I were more you, right. Yeah. yeah. She just ad libbed. They just, they just let her loose on the set mm. and whatever she came up with, they kept. Yeah. yeah. yeah uh, and it seems like it paid off because she is quite brilliant and she, like her emotional scenes are oh, so good quite amazing just mm. a little crying mm. face yeah. I believed her yeah yeah she's good yeah you just want to just want to be like stop crying Drew Barrymore <laughs> stop it yeah it's gonna be okay you'll be a zombie one day yeah now that that improv approach was how they filmed the entire of the entirety of uh, the Santa Clarita diet as well <laughs> uh, two, two different effects just yes yeah, send Drew Barrymore in and yeah, yeah off you she go. just started eating people and they were like <laughs> and okay. that, they changed the whole show that's, that's what this show's about I guess <laughs> um, the films released on video in the US in 1988 um, the cassette was made from green plastic as a measure to combat yes. video piracy. Yes, I remember that. Mm. Mm. Because, How does that work? Because all the video pirates were using black yeah. cassette tapes because they're the most easily accessible. Yeah. Um, whereas, obviously, getting a green one was, was harder because you can't just paint it. Like, it, you've got to have the access to the right plastic. Mm. Okay. And so, because of that, it was much easier to then spot whether or not something is an authentic copy. Nice. Mm. So it's probably worth a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it it was. It was pretty, pretty, pretty smart move. uh, So if you have your green cassette, go on eBay. (laughs) You're a millionaire. Yeah, probably. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it was interesting as well because um, Spielberg initially refused to let Universal release the film on home video formats. 
um, after the film had finished its long theatrical run because he believed it would cheapen the film's legacy and ruin prospects of theatrical re-releases in the coming years, which was a policy that studios had at the time. Disney had that policy at the time. Really? Yeah. Mm. Wow. Um, and so because obviously the, the the rise of the the vcr it's like well that's going to kill the theater industry no one's going to go to the the cinema again to watch watch and all it did was kill beta yeah mm-hmm. um spielberg said he saw the movie as a family event like going to see the wizard of oz where mm. people's childhood memories of it should be from the experience of seeing it in the theater um and a trip to the movie theater as part of that memory referencing his own childhood in the 50s um, surprisingly, Universal didn't pull rank on him and respected his wishes. Wow. Uh, despite the fact that they were losing money hand over fist. Wow, that is very surprising. Um, however, because of this decision, the film became the most pirated video of the 1980s. Hence, <laughs> hence the, the green tape uh, issue. Um, oh, that's rich. After several years of dealing with floods of complaints from angry parents and children um, who had been ripped off after seeing it in poor quality pirated videotape, Spielberg eventually gave in to the inevitable and allowed Universal to officially release the film to the domestic video market in 1988 with the green tapes, where it sold over 15 million copies. But that was probably smart of him because he, he made it a scarce resource. To the point where people were, you know, going out of their minds wanting to see this film. Mm. So that when it was released, it's kind of like Disney when they have things in the vault. Mm. You know, they make it scarce so that when they finally release it, everyone's like, I've got to get it now before it goes away. But I don't mm. think Spielberg's sitting there going, mm, yes, this is what I want to do. Like, I, I believe him with being like, no, the artistic integrity is no, we're not going to re-release this. This should be an event. Yeah, well, I mean, there's something to be said for that audience reception theory of, you know, going to the place and experiencing it together and Mm -hmm. having a a night out and, you know, actually all being there and having the emotions. There are some truly average to terrible films that I've seen that I have strangely fond memories of. Do you guys remember the movie Ghost Town by any chance? Ricky Gervais can speak to ghosts? Nope. I've not seen it. I mean, on paper, sounds (laughs) real tops. Uh, yeah, um, I I don't remember if that was a good film or not, but I remember I only remember it because I saw it in the cinema, mm. and it was a bit like because the other day uh, on one of the other podcasts I talked about the movie Green Zone, the 2010 Matt Damon Jason Isaacs film set in um, uh, like in in Iraq during the Iraq War, um, and the Green Zone is like supposedly the safe area. You're both looking at me blank. Uh, that's I know it. we had this conversation. We had this conversation last time, but yeah. the fact is, is I Green, was there. I, I, I've Googled it since. It exists. This film happened. Oh, I, I know it happened. But, and I've seen, I can picture the, the you know, the poster. Yeah, but I saw that in the cinema. Again, I don't know what I was doing in a cinema watching Green Zone. It's not really my sort of film, but it happened. And I, I can see a little bit of that argument where it's like, mm. yeah, no, I can remember and have that association. Every time I watch Lord of the Rings, I think of seeing it in the cinema. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think of seeing it in the cinema and seeing it in Fiji um, at the Sheraton Hotel, mm-hmm. watching Humble the two brand. towers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I couldn't afford it. I was 10. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we, we had a couple of nights there and like every night, because it was between the cinema release and the video release. Mm. Uh, so it hadn't quite been, you know, it, was, it wasn't out anywhere except the yeah, Sheraton right. Hotel. Mm. So like every night it's like, we're watching the two towers. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Nerd Sarah. At the auditions, Henry Thomas thought about the day his dog died to express sadness for his scene, which was the scene where he's upset that E.T.'s dead and is talking to E.T.'s body. Uh, Director Steven Spielberg cried and offered him the role of Elliot on the spot. Mm. Mm. He was very good. Mm. In my mind, I I remember, interesting, I might be jumping the gun on some trivia. Go ahead. That it was shot chronologically. It was shot chronologically, For the kids to to build up that emotional sort of... um, uh, yeah, storyline within themselves, mm. um, and I yeah. When I when I prior to tonight, think back on like Elliot's performance, I think of him at the dinner table at the start of the film, getting angry about about yeah his his brothers and his brother's friends, and I remember it's like oh god, that was, that was pretty naff. He's a kid, yeah, but sure. Uh, but yeah, um, I will shut up now because he was great. He was great. Mm. Uh, the filmmakers had requested that M&Ms be used to lure E.T., but the Mars company denied their request because they feared that E.T. was so ugly it would frighten children. <laughs> well, he would, they, they were right. Yeah, speaking <laughs> I of... I was frightened. I can't tell which bits you were frightened at. I was watching going, is this the bit? And I couldn't figure it out. Uh, basically, any... Well, the time in the closet when E.T.'s pretending to be a doll, mm-hmm. that scared me. Okay, that's creepy. Um, and basically any time... 
E.T. made a big noise. I didn't like that at all. And when his neck extended, didn't like that. Mm. Fair. Mm. Fair. That's crazy. Uh, and also when he was, yeah, sick and dying, didn't like that. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That was, that was As a kid, that would be a bit mm. scary. Um, Reese's Pieces were used instead of M&M's. And as a direct result, Reese's Pieces sales skyrocketed. Yeah. Uh, because of this, more and more companies began requesting that their products be used in movies. This was a common practice in uh, James Bond films, but nowhere else really at this time. Product placement had happened, but it was the product placement happening in E.T. and the oh. success that was really obvious for so Reese's Pieces. We can oh. blame Spielberg. That's such a shame. Mm. But yeah. Mm. That... Will literally impact my rating of this. <laughs> not even How joking. many Reese's pieces out of ten? Yeah, not even joking. That's going to impact it. But it's interesting because the filmmakers wanted M and M's because they were like, "Oh yeah, this makes sense." Like it's got. I, I don't think they were specifically going, "We're going to make M and M's great." Yeah, oh, you don't yeah. want you don't want us to help. Fine, we'll go to your rival. Mm. It was literally just yeah, a kid's going to have a favorite sure. sweet. But because E T was so popular, like it was radically popular, Reese's pieces being a part of that and being the thing that the alien wanted to eat then made Reese's Pieces incredibly popular. Uh, but it wasn't the birth of product placement. The, obviously, we said the James Bond films did it. Um, but also, Superman from 1978 has a scene with a young Clark Kent uh, getting up one morning, and there's a box of Cheerios on the table next to his bed. It was like, it's one of like the earliest... Next to his yeah, right. bed. Why not like in the kitchen where he's having breakfast? You don't have cereal right next to your bed for when you, as no. soon as you wake up? Not for the morning munchies. As soon munchies. as I wake <laughs> up... I pour the Cheerios on my face and then I grab a jug of milk and just pour it in my mouth while I'm on my pillow. Breakfast cereal straight in my mouth. You guys don't remember that advert? Yeah, yeah. It's my favourite one. Cheerios, put them straight in your mouth as soon as consciousness returns. There's a lot of crumbs in my bed. I mean, that assumes I go to sleep in the first place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yes. Although speaking of product placement, mm. I did like the the, the Star Wars figurine yeah. product placement because yeah. the whole time we're also they're like, oh yeah, this is this is definite product placement happening here. I so still... it turns out that wasn't the you know what they were trying to do. Mm. And the Coke. Um, and the Coke. Yeah, I, I still like the Greedo shot first in this film as well. <laughs> he did. That, was, that was beautiful. Uh, Richard Attenborough has said that he uh, felt bad that his own film from 1982, Gandhi beat this film to the Best Picture Award at the Academy Awards because, uh, one, he's a friend of Steven Spielberg's, but also he felt that E.T. was a better film. He was actually convinced going into it that E.T. would win Best Picture. Um, so, yeah, he, he's spoken really highly of it, and he described E.T. as a quite extraordinary piece of cinema. That's, that's really lovely mm. um, for someone to say of their own work. Um, I still haven't seen Gandhi, but um, but I, I definitely need to. Have you reviewed it for the podcast? No, but I believe he um, he follows uh, peanut butter M and M's to to get him into the bedroom. That's, <laughs> that's what they do. It also sounds like something the uh, winner could afford to say. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, I thought this film was much better. That's yeah, better than mine. True, yeah. I am the winner, but mm. yours was definitely better. Yeah. <laughs> the script was being developed at Columbia at the same time as a script about another alien visitation. Columbia didn't want to make both and chose to let E.T. go in favour of 1984's Starman. Oh, interesting. Mm. Now, Even that I've never heard of that one, such a good choice. Yeah, that, that, as you've not heard of Starman from 1984, that suggests that maybe it didn't have quite the impact that E.T. did. Yep, yep, I would say I, so. I was just confusing it with The Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> not this that was, one. Uh, the Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen um, right. film, which... Classic. Yeah. So that was a bad choice. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, obviously Universal Pictures picked it up and they were great. Funnily enough, Columbia still had um, uh, some residual rights to the money made from E.T. That does happen. I believe it was a 5% cut, which means that the um, highest grossing movie for Columbia that year was E.T. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, <laughs> and they only got five percent. Oh boy, that is hilarious! Someone got fired over that. Oh, you, mm. you'd, you'd you'd expect it to have happened. Secrecy was so tight during production that the poster designers didn't know what ET looked like when they were creating the iconic poster of the human and alien hand touching. The only thing they had to go on was notes from Spielberg. Wow! So yeah, they they knew nothing about it going in. Spoiler culture is quite old. Mm, mm. It certainly is. Um, so that brings us 
to the scores. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sarah, you get to go first because it was your first time watching E.T. the Extraterrestrial. What score would you give it out of 10? Uh, I would give E.T. the Extraterrestrial um, a score of seven and a half Star Wars cameos out of 10. (laughs) There were about that many. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's definitely why I chose that number. (laughs) Mm. Uh, what about yourself then? Um, yeah, interesting. Going before before rewatching this, I remembered it as ET, the basic terrestrial. <laughs> um, but now I've been holding on to that all day. Uh, but now, um, yeah, I'm I'm very impressed. I'm I'm actually giving it um, uh, eight of the same owl hooch noises <laughs> out of ten. They had a lot of sound effects, but only ooh, one owl. Only ooh, one ooh, owl. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, I, I really enjoyed this film. I think it's just a really lovely film. It's a pretty, pretty good family-friendly film. It's got a good level of intrigue. Um, it's, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty special without being spectacular, I think is probably where it's at. I'm like, at no point was my breath taken away, I guess, but it was like, I I was captivated. Mm. I I found it, I, I always find when I suddenly realize I've not written notes as I'm going for like two or three scenes. I'm like, no, I'm actually really engaged with this film. And that happened for me during this film. So it's certainly a very good film. um, And it's just a pleasure to watch it with friends as well. I think Mm. it is a really good film to watch with a a group of friends. Definitely. Um, I'm going to give it eight penis breaths out of (laughs) ten. Excellent. Um, It's... It's just a really, really lovely film and it still holds up. And 40 years on, that's that's quite an achievement. You mm. know, that visual fidelity, uh, there are certainly newer films that do not stand up as, as well as that. Nope. No. Uh, so, uh, Sarah, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. Thanks for having us. We'll be right here. (laughs) And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, There's a number of ways for you to get in touch with us. Uh, You don't have to phone us, though. You can go to Facebook on your phone, confusingly. Uh, (laughs) In your home. Yes. (laughs) You can search for us by just searching for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook. Give us a like and you'll get news and updates through there. Uh, We also have a Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, You can get all sorts of bonus goodies and extras by becoming a member of the Cinema Catch-Up Club Club. Uh, (laughs) um, And yes, a dollar a month, patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast to access that. And of course, uh, subscribe iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, each and every week, a new episode will be sent straight to you, uh, leaving a little rainbow um, slipstream. Wait a minute, Stephen, can't they just beam it up? (laughs) No, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Funny Greg. Yeah, Greg Greg came out poorly at this point. (laughs) He's the real villain. Yeah. Um, But yes, that is all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. I'll probably see you next week. No, you're not going to be on next week. <laughs> I, I guarantee it. <laughs>